Hello and welcome back to Autistically Ours New Cast podcast. And let's dive straight into it. Today, uh, well, or this evening, if you're listening on the, the day that it comes out, is with uh, oh, Jessica Espenfurger. The only reason why you're slipping up with the memory of it is because I'm recording this intro late in the evening as I've been working hard to prepare this to go out. And uh, this would should have been out last Thursday, but anyway, why? So and this week's episode will come out next this Wednesday, the one with Tess Tessa McEnvoy on on her Apexia story. So it may sound a bit of a mess at the minute, just kind of jumbled up with the editing and working on it. So this interview is with Jess talking about her uh, TikTok account. Her uh, disabilities as dyslexic, dyspraxic, ADHD and autistic, as well as her uh, uh, chronic illnesses including endometriosis and interstitial cystitis. Not great to say that, but she also goes on to explain a lot about the importance of sharing a story, like how exercise helps her, and her experience of like uh, doing school and getting diagnosed. It's quite an interesting one. It may sound a bit rambling on my part and bits and I apologize for that, but you know how some interviews go. And also if you want to contact the podcast, it's Nero at Nero Rainbow Project on Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook and Twitter. It's Autistically Aaron. You can also email uh, neurocast at aarocreo.com, neurocast at aarocreo.com at any time on the emails by sending an email and you know how emails work. And if you've got any questions, feedback, ideas, any comments on this episode, just send it to those places and with those social media accounts you can DM me if you want to keep it a bit private but uh, let's just get into it and just to see we're on and there is some references to uh, uh, self-interest meltdowns and mental health uh, issues where there is descriptions of uh, potential you know who's not seeing the bigger future, her future, and struggles with the mental health in that area, of you know, not seeing the future of bigger own life, and so many references to living. Jess, I'm 29, live in London, I'm originally from Bristol, I am neurodivergent, so I am dyslexic, dyspraxic, ADHD, autistic, and I also have two chronic illnesses, endometriosis and interstitial interstitial cystitis. What I normally tend to start off with the podcast is by getting a chance for the uh, people who I'm chatting to to uh, start where they got the diagnosis from, and like how they can 
things affect you? I mean, I didn't. I, I was very late in terms of getting diagnosed, officially diagnosed. I didn't get diagnosed with dyslexia and dyspraxia until I was in sick form. So I was 17, um, 17 or 18 when I was diagnosed. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, that was when I was about 20 or 21. It was my second year of university, but I went to uni later than most people do. I didn't go at 18. And then autism just over a year ago, when I was diagnosed with ADHD, the woman who was doing my diagnosis did say to me, I can't diagnose you with autism because this isn't an autism assessment. But my professional opinion is that you are autistic and advised me to pursue a diagnosis. But at which point, you know, I was still very uneducated in terms of what autism is. There was definitely a lot of internalized ableism. And at the time, I didn't believe it or I didn't want to believe it. And I was definitely in denial for a long time. It wasn't the first time someone had told me that they thought I was autistic. I had people say it to me throughout my life. But, you know, as I say, there was a lot of ableism and internalised ableism that I definitely had to overcome and educate myself really in order to accept it and to be able to really embrace who I am, officially who I am. As you said, you know, like it can take a while to get the autism diagnosis, especially in people who are women and girls under female at birth. As you say, that it was only until within the last year that you clicked on and realised you were autistic. So what was it like when the uh, person who was uh, diagnosed and you evaded turns around at the end of the interview and said I think you could possibly have autism and maybe that's something you want to pursue. I mean she didn't even say possibly she was quite definitive in it which I thought at the time was hilarious you know there's absolutely no way that I'm autistic and it had kind of been this like running thing where people had told me or asked me if I was autistic and I just always thought it was funny and I just thought it was this joke which again like you know I there's a part of me that's really ashamed to say these things but I think it's really important to be open and honest about it because I'm sure there are other people that are in the same position that I was and will be and I think like removing that embarrassment and actually talking about those feelings are really like important because it is definitely a journey that you go on and there's you know so many misconceptions and stereotypes um, and some people fit those stereotypes and that's absolutely fine but those stereotypes I think really prevent a lot of people from getting a diet understanding and getting support. Those stereotypes are quite impactful on it because you know like it didn't seem much representation of women and girls you know who are autistic before you got diagnosed and clicked on that maybe like they aren't something I guess I impacted you off thinking right I need to get diagnosed so were the people before you got your autism diagnosis and before when you like you said you kind of just laughed off thought you were autistic and what was the moment when you thought maybe I need to take this seriously the moment it was my sisters kind of had a little bit of an intervention so one of my sisters she works with young people she works at this time she was working within a school 
specifically with children that had educational needs, kind of a bit wider to that. So there were behavioural difficulties in there, but it was it was very broad. But specifically, she worked with autistic children. My other sister is she is a researcher, a science researcher. Um, she's a scientist, doctor. So I'd I'd really struggled my entire life. Obviously, they'd they'd witnessed it. My family had witnessed it. And then the pandemic came about and like my life changed for the better. And I know it's awful to say and I feel really guilty and I'm not dismissing at all how horrendous the pandemic is for most people. But for me, all of the things that I'd been struggling with were no longer as heightened. And I think what was a really key acknowledgement for me was prior to the pandemic, I'd got myself so burnt out on a regular basis. I would be so low, I would have meltdowns. I got to the point where I was feeling, often feeling like so depressed that I'd be thinking about, you know, not wanting to be here. And then the pandemic happened and I didn't have those feelings anymore. But I wasn't really able to put like the two and two together until, I think it must have been after like the first lockdown had ended people started to kind of go a little bit back to normal and I started to have those feelings again now the commute was getting busier I was having to socialize more places were busier and I was having sensory overload but at the time prior I hadn't understood or been able to put like a a term on these things you know I I hadn't recognized before that it was like the impact of socializing I hadn't really reflected on I thought a lot of the things that I'd done were things that everybody did so for example like in work I would rehearse conversations before I'd have a meeting or on my way to work I would rehearse conversations I would practice things in the mirror if I knew I was going to be having a conversation with a specific person practicing my facial expressions and then I'd get to work I'll be communicating with people and I'll be thinking about everything from my facial expressions to my tone of voice to my body language I would stim and I didn't realize what stimming was but I always I've always stimmed and I was conscious that I did it and I I would try and hide it so I was so much less productive in work because I would be constantly trying to think about a million things rather than just like taking in the meeting or the conversation and trying to retain that information and it was much harder when we moved online you know I didn't have to worry about those things anymore I could see my facial expression on the camera so I wasn't as conscious of it I was able to like kind of practice in the in the space of my own home and then like other people would say my, my partner or housemates would be like what are you doing like you, why are you rehearsing or why are you talking to yourself and I didn't think it was an odd or different thing to do so it kind of made me start to reflect on that and then as like I say things went back to normal I it really hit me because I'd because I'd really struggled and then I hadn't struggled for so long during that pandemic period it hit me like 10 times harder and I think before I'd kind of accepted I struggle and I just thought I would have to live like that always but then because I experienced the other side of life during the pandemic where I wasn't struggling I really didn't want to feel like that anymore so um, I was having conversations with my sisters they didn't say it to me initially but they had conversations amongst themselves and said that they thought that I was autistic they had a conversation with my mum and funnily enough my mum who's a nurse I know her colleagues very well they're not just colleagues they're friends and they said to my mum that they'd thought I was and they had thought I was for a long time and these are people that are qualified in you know giving diagnoses one of the people that said it actually has an autistic child themselves at that point they spoke to my mum and my mum had spoke to other people and you know there were all of these different people that were saying it my partner had said it to me for a long time he'd said to me that he thought I was autistic 
autistic and again I'd, I'd always taken it as it being an insult like no I'm not autistic but then you know when you're hearing it from people from so many different aspects of your life and that know you in so many different kind of capacities I started to think actually maybe there is something in this because it's not just coming from someone that I live with or someone that knows me really well you know yeah. coming from so many different people so it does seem quite something interesting and that it seemed like you were the only but you was like kind of last person of the people around you that thought that can actually clicked on and thought I am autistic and as you've seen that because I guess Iblis tropes or Iblis view of what you perceived as autism until the point where you started to get diagnosis and look into things for yourself as you said then can you add a lens and thought you put a protective guard over yourself as you seen was masking and then only until the pandemic like many people find that give a space of like self-reflect for then it was like self-reflection where you was like end up taking the mask off or when evil for people to tell you when the, like the flags of you mask and move and then became more inescapable of being able to cover up and continue to be seen as see yourself as neurotypical and when you're autistic. But and also um, because there is a lot of misinformation online, a lot of the things that are actually autism, I'd thought was ADHD. A lot of the time when I was speaking to like my sister, for example, you know, as I say, she works in research. So she develops like medicines. So she's yeah. working on a trial at the moment. And it's like a cannabis, a CBD trial. One of the uses for that is for ADHD. So I'd spoken to her about that, and that's and because I thought for all of the things were a repercussion of my ADHD. So yeah, so that's kind of where part of the reason yeah. why I dismissed it. As you say, it's, it does get quite confusing when you create multiple neurodivergent, as you said, you're first diagnosed with dyslexia, dyspraxia, and then later on ADHD. And I guess when you like get the, those diagnoses earlier on, then I guess you can think that some stuff is more attributed to those conditions rather being attributed to autism. And then when you got like multiple neurodivergent Agencies, then I guess it becomes quite mindful to navigate through what's what and do I tick that amount of boxes to be that type of, you know, neurotype. That's exactly what it was. And I think, you know, the diagnostic process at least in my experience, I had my assessments and then you're just like, you know, you're just, okay, there you've got your, diag- you've got your diagnosis and you just set off on your way. And nobody ever sits down and have, well, with me anyway, and had yeah. a conversation of like, this is, even though they'd had the conversations and they'd asked me questions, obviously about my life and how I deal with things and certain tasks and stuff I'd had to do. No one had ever said, you doing this is why I think, well, why you've got the diagnosis. I never Never knew for a long time why I had that diagnosis why what any of the diagnosis is like of course you get your report through and it says Jesse does blah 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 and Jesse is blah 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 but you know that it's so much more complex than that it's really difficult to know what is what and again then and then so much shame is attached because no one says oh you know with ADHD for example like you might have brain fog or per- ADHD paralysis yeah you don't you know, you have to do so much research on your own outside of those diagnoses to really understand what that means and what it looks like. 
especially on an individual basis because it is so different for everybody. The problem with what you were saying, it can relate to that because, like, I was diagnosed, you know, a lot earlier than yourself. Diagnosed with uh, dyspraxia at the age of, like, seven and then autism at the age of ten. But it was only, like... 18 when they started to uh, understand what they meant because like like autism was labelled as Asperger's with myself yeah. and then it's like it was only from my knowledge I decided to ditch the label because hearing about like the impact of functioning labels and of course you know the uh, origins of Asperger's and relates to nauseism yeah. like that so as you say it's like that's this issue with a lot of it being about the research and the understanding of like a neurotypical person lens of being neurodivergent and then because it's not understood like the diagnosis process the like signs of treats and symptoms not set out by neurodivergent person and it can be quite harder to understand and then, as you said especially like when you have that diagnosis no one explains things explains what what's not things so then you kind of think that like you bit weird you back never know how to ask for that help or get help. That's really interesting that you had a similar experience even though you were diagnosed much earlier because I also do think that there's an element of being in school and like I don't know about your experience personally but I did experience like bullying and stuff at school but there was still yeah. a safety net around school if that makes sense. It's still you have a set routine that definitely really helped me even though like my ADHD hates routines having that routine of going to school and you have the half term yeah. six weeks holidays like you kind of know what to expect and it's like you know there's not a lot of change and whatnot it's actually I guess and you there is kind of like a freedom to be yourself and be accepted and to behave a certain way then when you go into the adult world or the real world that kind of changes and I think that yeah. it actually becomes a lot harder I remember one of my teachers saying to me when I was going through the diagnostic um, process for dyslexia dyspraxia oh is there really like any point you know you're leaving school you're not thinking of going to university and at the time I kind of was like well I'm not sure if I'll go to uni so I think I should do it just in case and I'd always associated having those diagnoses the importance of it being directly linked to education but actually it's even if you don't go to uni or you don't go to school or whatever it's still so important and then probably yeah. even more important because it doesn't you don't get to 18 and then it stops affecting you you know it affects throughout your entire life yeah and as you said because you like think of it as being education related as you say with dyslexia, it can be as you say typically part of just difficulty with reading and then dyspraxia difficulty with practical tasks but as you said, because you probably had undiagnosed autism and ADHD and like suffered with anxiety and like with the autism and anxiety thing with myself, even though like sometimes in school you don't mask and you don't like, it's a space where you're still not sure who you are and still finding that self. And so you don't really have that freedom to understand yourself. I understand what you mean when you said about the uh, comfort of your school, you get that routine of like uh, knowing what you're doing day in and day out. And then you don't have to think too much about the future because once you finished with like sixth form and it was easier to transition from comp to sixth form because it's similar typeset area you know like it was similar set of independence but when he tried to go to uni- university only like lasted out five weeks because like like I was still having trouble getting access not supports right ahead because like uh, time with like getting 
comms, right? But it's like it's a big, big hit chance, it's an honor chance, and you don't feel prepared off from when you moving from like, you know, like the world of schooling to the adult world and now it's quite a big thing. Oh, a massive, massive thing. And I guess that's part of the reason that I'm like so passionate about talking about it online is because that transition is so difficult. And even moving from one workplace to the other or one home to the next or one relationship to the next, those kind of things as an adult is is really hard. And it's so important that that sort of stays in place and people feel confident enough to ask for the support that they're owed because that can be like the deal breaker as well like for me part of like when I was growing up I had this like weird thing that I think is really like I always never saw my life past 18 and it wasn't like in a really sad way it was just I could only see my life up to 18 and I got to 18 and I was like oh okay I'm here like okay it'll be 21 and I don't know why but it was like I just had these landmarks that I thought okay well now I'm here I'm I'm probably going to make it to here but I couldn't envision that future I couldn't see and I think I think there's two things in it one of the things is that I can't envision like I can't imagine things like in my head when I shut my eyes I can't see things I can't picture things at all so I think part of it is that like I I can't so because I can't imagine it I can't because I can't physically imagine yeah it's hard to think about but I think the other part of it is linked to that you know you know when you're in primary school but next step is secondary school and when you're in secondary school you know next step is uh, sick form or college so I think that that was really linked to it of having that routine and that system and there was something inside of me that knew outside of that I was going to really struggle to function and maybe I couldn't pinpoint what it was but inside like in my gut I I knew and I think it's like when you get to the age of 18 then when you go through like comp and school and whatever you kind of like the choices are kind of all laid out for you and you know like you, you know like you don't have to think about what you're doing in the future and you know what comes next so that does take a bit off your shoulder a bit and if you can just think about the here and now that's all easy for you would divert in the person because like it's so easy to get overwhelmed by choices because as you say the simple choices or for you went for tea to have for food and stuff like that. That that can be quite struggled for neurodivergent person and as you know, like sometimes it's like easier to go for the same options or the safe options. But when you get to the age of 18, when you can choose to go to college, you, you know, like university and like apprenticeships jobs, there's infinite amount of options and it's hard to navigate the right from the wrong then. I think for the neurodivergent person like myself, it can get quite isolated there now if I want to navigate that space. Oh, absolutely. Because it's like, A, I mean, I don't know if, if you're the same, but I... I am so adverse to change. Like, I hate change. I cannot deal with it. It gives me anxiety particularly if it's like more than one change at once like if yeah. I go through like multiple changes like recently I got a new job and I moved house and stuff and it was a lot in one go so there's like the change element and then like you say there's the choice and when you pair the two together it's so overwhelming because you've got all these decisions that you have to make and you don't know which is the right one to do and you spend so much time just like overthinking about it and probably like beating yourself up and having the intrusive thoughts 
thoughts about what if you make the wrong decision and then there's the actual change element too which is again when you're coming out of a routine that you're comfortable with and that you know really scary and difficult and often just avoid it and it is it's isolating because even within that then you've got the other layers that you have to add in it's a new space that you're not used to you have to make friends and like be around people that you don't know and that's again something that I find so hard so yeah it's it's all of those things you know like that's something that I struggle with myself as I found with like something like university it would have been okay if it was like just the one thing changed on me because you know when you sometimes like off different things if it's like a change in one category, then you can work to adapt to that and kind of think of like small ways around it. But as you like when you was trying to do university, as you say, you got a source, the uh, changes of new people, and then you got a new environment. But then there's new aspects of like learning and, you know, practical uh, and like theoretical stuff to adapt to. So like, I think if you, you got so many different things to navigate, and for a person like myself, I'd struggle to, to go out to it out somebody with me so like it's difficult then if like you're just then like a small fish in a big pond then yeah. and that's what sometimes is like that's exactly yeah exactly what it is and, and you feel so, drowning and do you think like from when you were in like primary school age and for secondary school age was it that you know like comfort of like having a seamless less change in the environment you're in was it made easier to uh, go and ignore without being diagnosed autistic? I think yes, but even though I didn't get diagnosed in primary school, they did identify that there was something different. And I don't know... You know, I've never I never asked the questions why, but um, I don't know if you had um, something called golden time when you were in school. So it was like this thing at the on at the end of the week on a Friday where you had like might have been like an hour out of learning time where you could just play, and throughout the week you would have like you if you were naughty you get a minute off golden time and then like you know then you'd have to sit in a corner and it was punishment or whatever okay. during golden time I wasn't allowed to participate because I was pulled into special lessons where it was like I just had to like had like an additional teacher that would go over my work with me and then I had this teacher on lunch times too like three times a week where I was pulled out and I had like special lessons and at the time nobody said to me we think it's because you're slow or you struggle with this or you sh- I, I I can't recall anyone explaining to me why the fact that I had to have it suggests that they acknowledged something different or there was something going on so they did definitely identify it I don't know why they never pursued anything further I think my theory is that because in primary school I wasn't like naughty it didn't come out in my behavior I was just very much like in my own world and kept myself to myself. So even though it was obvious that I was struggling, it wasn't a problem for anyone. Whereas when I got to secondary school, it came out in a different way. Like I would struggle and then the teachers would deal with me and say things like, stop trying to be funny or stop acting stupid or stop trying to make the class laugh and don't ask stupid questions. You know, these kind of comments. Yeah. I wasn't doing at all and because I wasn't doing it or I would ask a question that they would think I was taking mick or taking the piss and I'd be like no it's a serious question I'm and I couldn't understand like what it was 
that they were like getting angry about so I'd end up getting myself into a lot of trouble because of these kind of things so I think it then and then it was like this kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy where I didn't understand so I'd get fed up because I could I didn't understand or I'd get fed up because I was being told off for doing things that I didn't realize were a problem so I think like the way I dealt with it changed very much so and I think that's why I started to get, because um, when I say I didn't get diagnosed until the end of secondary school, they did realise throughout secondary school that, again, there was something and they couldn't, no one could really figure it out. And um, I remember this one woman who was like in secondary school, and I think I was in year seven at the time, and she acknowledged that there was something something but didn't know what well she her view on it was that it was OCD and um I remember her saying to my mum like well she's she's obviously OCD and my mum being a nurse was like she's absolutely not OCD like yeah she's not OCD I'm a nurse I'm a mental health nurse and I, I I know the difference and she's definitely not OCD and I remember so vividly this woman saying to me afterwards when my mum wasn't there, I think that your mum's ashamed to admit that you're OCD because she works with people that are OCD. And I knew in my heart that my mum would have accepted me for whatever it whatever diagnosis I had. And I trusted that my mum's opinion was right. And that, you know, it wasn't like my mum was trying to stop me from yeah. any diagnosis. It was just she was saying it was wrong. But because this yeah. woman had spoke about my mum like this and like made this assumption it had really left like a bad taste in my mouth and made me distrust her so from then I didn't I'd stopped going to the like the the kind of things that she was sending me to then my mum and dad um they put they they tried to um get me extra support so they got me to go to the mind charity um and try to help get me help through there um, sleep is something that I'd really struggled with and they thought maybe some of my struggles were coming through sleep deprivation because I'd, I've never slept literally since I was a baby it's always been a big problem so they thought it maybe it was related to sleep so they then took me to a sleep therapist and they took me they were they were actively trying yeah. to get me support it wasn't that they didn't want to admit it it was just that they just didn't yeah. know. They didn't know the answers and yeah, didn't know what just, to do with yeah exactly. as you said the from what you said, uh, described as school like as you're saying i don't know what how many years ago that was but as you're saying it it seemed like literally then your like your school experience was that your school teachers and the pe people that worked in school like they passed over or you know like support be supportive people didn't have a clue of what neurodivergency is whatsoever. And I think it's one thing is that's so important is to be able to like get understood when you're like a young child throughout, you know, secondary school and primary school. I was saying that, you know, when you, you were saying that in primary school, you know, when you said about golden time, you said that they had like idea that something was different, but they never told you and like as you said, something that that uh, teachers tend to talk indirectly or like would refer to the parents. But as you were saying, it did, didn't seem like they understood or have a clue of what ADHD or dyspraxia or, or dyslexia was. Yeah. And as you said, that had a massive impact on the experience of school. Oh, a huge impact. And like 
I had some teachers that were awful, but then I had some teachers on the other hand that were amazing. So I had one teacher that, you know, I used to get in trouble for like, I would stim in class and I would, I've always, a way that I focus is yeah. by whistling or by tapping or by like um, playing with my hands or playing with my hair or picking my skin. And I would constantly be told off for doing it. And for me, that was helping me to focus. But then the other thing I always was told off for was my facial expressions. And I find it really difficult. My facial expressions yeah. don't reflect my face, not my face, but like yeah. my emotions. And my teachers would call my mum and say to my mum that I was pulling faces at them and that, you know, I was being aggressive. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And I'll get home and my mum would say, I've had another phone call from your teacher again. And I'm like, what? Am I? I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I had no idea. So it made me feel like really resentful to particular teachers that had then had an impact on that lesson because I wouldn't want to go because I wouldn't want to be around them. Whereas on the other hand, I had some amazing teachers who really acknowledged but there was something going on and, you know, would pull me aside. They would adapt how they taught the lesson to help me to um, to understand it. I had an English teacher and I couldn't get Shakespeare for the life of me. The words, everything, it was just so difficult. I thought, I find reading really hard as it is. And yeah. she would use other forms of poetry like rap music to try and teach me. And she would tell the story in different ways and like was just really creative with her teaching methods. Um, or do like one-on-one -on -one lessons with me like at lunchtime like be like oh come in and let me have a chat and help you not in like a patronizing way yeah. but in a really nice a nice way and I'm so grateful um, for those teachers because if it wasn't for them I wouldn't have come out with the grades that I did um, and it was actually in when I was doing my A-levels um, it was actually my drama teacher that suspected that I was she didn't know, I don't think she suspected what I was, but she was the one that got me my assessment for dyslexia, dyspraxia, because um, um, she'd identified something. And it was not until the pandemic where I actually reached out to her to say, thank you, I don't think you know the impact. I emailed her. Um, I don't yeah. know the impact that that had on my life. Like, thank you so much. Because if I'd never had that diagnosis, I'd never have had my ADHD one. Yeah. Probably would never have then um, got my aut autism one either. Like, I would never have started that process. Um, and anyway, I said, what was it that made you? And she said, there were a number of things, but one thing really stood out to me. And she said, there's always like stayed in her mind was that I would talk about how long it would take me to have a shower and the process that I would go through to have a shower. Like I do everything in a specific order and how long it would take me to cream my body after having a shower. And she said it was so specific the way that I would describe it in the order in which I would do things in. But also she, like, I can't remember what the rest of it was, but it was all around like something completely unrelated to school, but she'd heard me talking about that had been like, she that for some reason stuck out in her mind. and. I'm glad that it did because, and I'm glad that she then, you know, reached out to get me that help because if she hadn't, like I say, I, again, yeah. I don't think I would have made it for university. And As you said, you know, like it can be a, like a pick of the crop when you're in school, you know, like you, like that one thing is, can be quite challenging and it's like, you don't know what type of teacher you're going to have. And as you said, that for like, the teachers who like saw you needed that bit extra but didn't have the answers to what conditions you had you know like the importance of being patient and trying to find 
different ways of like explaining things. And as you said, with your drama teacher, there's a lot of importance in listening to like students' behaviors and or like what they're saying and try to connect it for the uh, like them as a person. Like they put the dots together within like the things that you're doing in the lesson. It's not just the essay that you're writing, it's what what you're saying, how you're saying it, your nonverbal communication, everything, the whole picture. Yeah, and as yeah, like in today, you know, it's not important thing about your teaching is it's not just like the teaching a lesson, but I think it's about being able to like help the student as a person get on their own way in life and, you know, like get a good start in life. And that's, as you say, from the drama teaching, being able to have the time and the patience to research and like I you probably looked things that kind of discovered probably through research of own what this box in dyslexia is. What was it like then being having that diagnosis then and were you like when you were uh, contacted the, your uh, own trauma teacher then what was that experience then? So that experience then so I just went through so she contacted them and I can't remember how she told me that she had but she like all I remember was knowing that she'd spoken to somebody and then I had to go and have this assessment and there was lots of tasks and all of this stuff and then at the end I was given a report and she said I'll write this up for you and you know this is um I- I'm giving you a diagnosis of dyslexia dyspraxia you're entitled to do your essays do that extra time of your essay yeah. extra time in exams and you can have extra support and all of these things she'd recommended as well but I have like these coloured overlays as well because she said it was also Eileen syndrome I saw you do like Eileen syndrome or something Eileen syndrome yeah Yeah. so she gave me like these coloured overlays it was really significant to see that one so I'd already done my AS level so an AS and an A, A level and in my AS levels for sociology, I got an E. Then I retook it with the extra support, the extra time, having a laptop room on my own. I got an A. I didn't work any harder. It was literally not having those distractions, those noises, yeah. you know, it was the clock ticking or someone tapping or people walking up and down, being in a space where I wasn't, like didn't have any visual distractions, where I was able to type rather than write. I could not believe it when I got my grades through and I saw that significant jump. And yeah, so I mean, it, it definitely helped me in terms of like that, but I would still say even out, like in terms of my actual like exams, it really helped. But I didn't, At that point, I still didn't get any support, like, outside of lessons. You know, it wasn't like I then had somebody come in to help me or anything, which I probably would have really benefited from. I think something that I would have massively benefited from is maybe just having somebody to kind of, like, talk to and communicate to, because one of my really big struggles with being ADHD is the emotional dysregulation that comes with it. And I was, like, I was getting myself into trouble a lot throughout secondary school and my sick form. I would lose my temper and I'd chuck chairs and I'd have meltdowns and I'd bang my head against the wall and I'd pull my hair out you know really dangerous not just to myself well not just to other people but to myself meltdowns that at the time I thought were tantrums obviously but had I had somebody support me in learning how to regulate my emotions and looking at different techniques or things that I could do I think that would have been really life-changing because they're things that I continued throughout 
adulthood, I would have regular meltdowns where I would smash things. I would chuck things. I'll pull my hair. I'd smash my face against the wall. I would hit myself. Like all of these things that are awful. And the only way that I can describe it is like, it feels like in that moment I'm being possessed by something. It's not like I can just stop. It just builds up and builds up and builds up. And sometimes it will come on as like a repercussion of like being in a, being really um, have too much like sensory stimuli sometimes it'll be yeah. because of, like an emotional situation but I just couldn't manage those emotions and I think that support would have just been so important to me and really helpful and I think may have also helped the amount of times you know I'd thought about not wanting to be here and you know all the times I've written like notes to my family because I was like oh I'm not going to be here I'm going to end it all you know all of those kind of things I probably I don't know but I I, I wonder if, if I'd had that support would I have yeah. ended up in those places and as you said then you know like going through that without having diagnosis then of ADHD and autism must have been really tough as like as I say I'm just glad I never like experienced that you know physical type of you know meltdowns like for me I all like looking back now these days I notice it tends to be more looks a bit more like panic attacks and so like then I think being able to look back and thought maybe some of my panic attacks maybe were meltdowns and they weren't able to think to sing this form but as I said I, I'm just grateful that I never had that experience of like remember, you know, we're reading about the harm they could cause self. And as I said, that, that must be like tough to go for. And as saying that without having like anybody in your like that could like guide you with it, as I said, even though like you had like empathetic and supportive parents who were training best for you, but like somebody who was like a never neurodivergent person that like could help you in that way yeah that was really hard like I, I've i still got hair like on my arms and it's not self-harming like I don't know if you can see yeah. that but like I would I like I would yeah I can't twist my arm around but like I yeah. would smash photo albums um photo frames sorry and get the glass and just like literally it would be whatever I could do and it wasn't in that moment like I'm trying to kill myself but it was like it it, it would it, like I say something would just possess me like it that's the only way I can describe yeah. it it's so so violent and horrible um yeah and you and you just can't control it and then afterwards there's so much shame attached I remember having those meltdowns when I was younger and my dad and mum used to say things like you're um you're um, gonna wait the neighbors it's not fair you're being selfish you're distracting people like you need to pack it in and now obviously they feel awful like yeah. you know, but because they didn't understand they're like you're too old to be having tantrums and behaving like this like you know, not recognising, yeah. realising what it was. Yeah, yeah, as I said, you probably, like, as you said, you'd like that then now they feel a bit, like, guilty for it. And as I said, you know, like, I, like it m- must be, like, like, a tough thing because, like, as I said, you only, like, now you've been able to get that diagnosis of autism and ADHD. And, like, as you are saying about then, you know, like, the impact of not having a diagnosis can be quite harmful harmful to neurodivergent to themselves as you know like it can take so many people's lives away from like as say that you know like the mental health side of things as saying that you like you didn't want to you know end it but you know like it was just like they were kind of like 
ill, like in a stressful age in the mental zone, I guess, because you didn't know how to control the feelings you were feeling as you felt quite possessed for it. And as you said, like, like here, like, it's like, as you say, sometimes it's them and then sometimes in the meltdowns, like what stimming is, like, it can be a bit more harmful. Yeah, harmful stims for me. I always, yeah. when I talk about stims, I say that there are healthy stims and then there are unhealthy Yeah, um, and the, yeah it's like being able to, and then it's the important thing is being able to find a way of, like, understanding what's, you know, unhealthy or what's healthy and how, how you can help a person who's, like, having unhealthy and harmful stems. And as you were saying about, like, you wanted to be able to have that support of, like, an extra member of staff that could be your Muslim regulation. And from what I've been talking to, like, the guests on the podcast and reflections on this, so, like, there is really need for the importance of having like neurodivergent people to be able to like inform like oh like things get set out in schools and an education system and like as I think to myself now it would be so beneficial to have like a neurodivergent person come into school to like actually teach what is ADHD and autism and uh, these things and explain it to normalize these things so like people can understand then and maybe get an earlier diagnosis and for then teachers to sign empathizing with it. I completely, completely agree. I think it's a real challenge though because the education system now is so flawed. Teachers are teaching classes of what, 30, 35 students, which is going to make it impossible for them to recognise and have those one-on-one relationships with people. Yeah. So I think I feel for teachers because they need, they need to have yeah. that education. But even with that education, it's going yeah. to be so hard for them to identify these things and they've got so many pupils to, to kind of teach and manage so I really think that the whole system needs to have a reform because it, it affects everyone doesn't it? From the content I see you creating and the stuff you manage to make speeches on you manage to incorporate like your life experiences some of the negative experiences you had into like making people aware of and trying to make things like easier for change like, you know, to try to change things for better. It's definitely something that I'm really passionate about. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't, I, I think that it's really like interlinked with being autistic now and ADHD, yeah. like that social justice. Definitely, I think that's probably why I feel it so deeply. Like I, I look back at some of the like past elections and being on the phone to my dad and being like, I can't live in this world anymore. Why are people so cruel? Blah, blah, blah. Like, I can't believe that we're going to have this, you know, so many people are going to be going to food banks. What's going to happen? happens the NHS like distraught like completely distraught which of course like it's natural I think to feel like that but the reaction was so it was like grief that's the only way I can explain it is it really felt like grief but when I look back at my like life I can really see how that even before I had the kind of education or awareness to kind of accompany it Um, that kind of like social activism has always been like a part of me so there's a story that my nan always tells about how um, I'd we'd been at her house and I'd had 
uh, me and her my friend were there and we were having something to eat and she walked in and I was talking to her about fascism and I was yeah. talking to her about she mustn't leave her food on the table um leave any food on her plate because there are children that don't have any food in the world um which I completely disagree with now you know you shouldn't force people to eat if they're not yeah. but it was the whole element of like there are people without anything we should be grateful and then yeah. in primary school I used to go around without um, a coat on at lunchtime when it was raining and my teacher would say you need to put your coat on and then say no we need to know what it feels like to be homeless homeless people have to live like this all the time we should have to experience it too and then one Easter um, I refused to eat any of my Easter eggs until I'd stood with my arms out like in a cross for I can't remember how long but a certain period of time because you had to understand what it felt like and what Jesus sacrificed on the cross for us to have these Easter eggs, you know, that need that kind of very unique way of trying to understand and empathize um, with people was definitely something. And then in secondary school, I would organize protests and I'd get the whole school out and we'd all sit on the balconies and refuse to go to lessons because it might have been over things like school uniform or um can't remember the others like there was ones around like racial justice but the school uniform one really sticks out because I remember getting like a new head teacher come in and she tried to change our uniform I hated the new uniform because it was like this horrible material and it used to really itch my legs and like yeah. when it got wet it was oh just this the sense of it was horrendous yeah. and before I'd been wearing a tracksuit to school and I was so comfortable and I worked really well wearing my tracksuit bottoms and I was so comfortable and then all of a sudden no you must wear this this and this and your skirt must be this long and I was like it's sexist you can't tell us what to wear people should be able to learn how they're most comfortable again now I realize that so much of that is linked to probably being the fact that I'm autistic linked to your uh, new autoagencies and yeah. as you said you know like some of it is like linked to being both autistic and ADHD as I said you know like from when he was saying about like the stuff of the cross and all that I guess it's one of those ways of like taking the like the empathetic social justice you now quite literal way of thinking as you're saying because like the symbols and gestures of the cross like sometimes you can naturally envisage how these things are yeah absolutely yeah, and when, when you were, like, touching me, when it came to your uh, experience of, like, schooling, as you were saying that, some, some of it was down to, like, you know, your sensory needs, your sensory uncomfortness of it. Within the school system you described, you know, when that, as you said, some teachers, you know, like, really had found it difficult to deal with because, you know, like, they didn't have the patience and didn't understand your neurodivergent conditions mm-hmm. and as you said, you supported and... And then at that age, when you're still young, it's hard for kids. So I guess it's that impulse then of wanting something to change. Then and you're trying to find something creative in yourself, just an alternative way of advocating then for yourself. You know, there's something like this school uh, uniform and protest against it. A hundred percent. I definitely think that's what it is, like thinking outside the box in a different way. yeah. As like with being able to take words, and I think like sometimes there can be two ways in school. Like sometimes can feel like needing to be super obedient or like feel off being told off or like doing something wrong, which I kind of felt. And then as you described it, like there's a way of like breaking out of the what like what was like supposed to be like with the rules, and then finding a way of like well you didn't see us being naturally being fair or you know reasonable, like off way of like just. To like go you know, 
protest against it. Mm-hmm. But just, yeah, as you say, you know, sometimes you don't notice like school rules around uniform being like sexist and something like that. And like within being a good and then like there's different ways of leadership and taking initiatives that can uh, happen. And I guess that's why inspired you to be more politically active now and like make start making these TikTok videos addressing it. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And I don't think you necessarily realise how linked it is until you like take that moment to like reflect on it and look back. Yeah. Does that make sense? You understand what you know about yourself now to look upon your past and, you know, put together like where you that person and in the moment where you are right now and I uh, can see like all like you kind of like like you know past is kind of linked off or you're trying to create awareness of or like 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 create social media content and activism against and I guess you're trying to help some somebody else or hope your content or activism help somebody else who's been in an um, similar position to you and so they don't experience the negative experience yeah I think like for me it was like a mixture of things like going online it's like initially it was a kind of around like that community and not feeling like alone and getting feeling like a sense of comfort from other yeah. people relating and you know going from feeling so isolated and feeling like you're the only one that experiences this these things to realizing actually there are so many people that do and it's not abnormal and there's nothing wrong with you and you're not a bad person so there was like that comfort element to it and the community element and you know everyone has been online so lovely and so nice um and it's like a completely different experience to you know so many people talk about online trolls and stuff and yeah you might experience that like a small degree but on the most part everyone is so supportive and then it's like you know you want to educate people you want to make other people feel how other people have made me feel um and having these conversations about things that are difficult to talk about and often like shame is so attached to it but actually when you have those conversations then might even if it's only one other person that can relate and it helps them to feel more normal or feel less alone it's worthwhile doing social media can be quite new ones thing and it's neither one thing or the other as i said for myself you know like social media is like on the internet has been the only one of the only ways i started to understand my neurodivergencies from the lens of neurodivergent people and it's given me quite great power to do that and getting comfortable talking and then opening up to people and as i say that like in in my own life, before that, I may probably know, like, when I do have uh, people who have, like, a condition same as myself, and then I didn't, because, like, how highly masked, I didn't feel as comfortable in opening up and talking to them. But, like, when you got, like, see so many different people making content of on the road, like, is, and having quite a, like, high open con- way of, like, sit, post, making posts, and you find ways of relating to it. It's great way of educating and find, like seeing yourself reflected in what you see now online. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a really big point, actually. It's really interesting you say that because I feel like there is such a lack of representation of us in like the media and stories and stuff like that. And what it is, it's so stereotypical. And actually, like the majority of us aren't necessarily like that. So 
online it's like we're taking back that ownership of actually this is what we are like and then being able to kind of relate and like laugh and whatnot and that yeah relate yeah. to those jokes and see ourselves in it yeah I think you're right yeah I was saying that from what like we've been able to see before in traditional media like you'll see when bite says a bit of it but like as I say now we can expand and openly tell our stories as it is and get get our stories and say the things out there as like when we like talked about like the diagnostic criteria and stuff like that a reference how like sometimes it can be like very neurotypical sighted onto the view of us and now it's like an easier way of projecting the view of us out there because we're the platforms do so and as you say Newton's so much different stuff like of like telling your own story on social media mm-hmm. and like some of that has been like very it's been like your chronic illnesses things like as you said racial injustice social issues you feel passionate about neurodivergent disabilities like that this is how I for your TikTok videos this is how I found out about yourself and thought about getting your own podcast but for anybody who hasn't seen them maybe like touch upon what stuff you I've talked about on your TikTok. Now I'm on a treatment plan that has worked really well and I'm really lucky, but it took me, God, about seven years to get to that place. Um, And I do still have flare-ups, which are like usually related to stress. Ironically, I came out of lockdown and I was getting way more flare-ups again, which, you know, I think it's very much linked to navigating um, a a neurotypical society. That kind of stress, I think, is really linked to it because when I'm at the worst in my physical health is usually when I'm most stressed um so I talk about that a lot endometriosis which I was diagnosed with when I was I believe 18 or 19 um which is like when the lining of your womb grows outside of it and it can cause really like pain like lots of pain feeling like tired and heavy periods etc so I talk about that but less so because I'm quite lucky that I'm one of the very few that I've heard of that have got it but not to like a severe degree so it used to be much worse and it's not as bad as it was when I was growing up so when I say growing up when I was like in my teen years so I talk about that but then I also talk about lots of things around like social issues so um, anything from like the NHS to homelessness to racial justice the education system things that I would like to see change in and then just more broader things that are just things that I find funny things that I relate to so I don't I don't really necessarily I think fit into like one niche and I think that's something that I'm trying to make sure that I don't like box myself in too much because often people think oh you're ADHD you're autistic you're dyslexic you're dyspraxic and that's your whole personality or that's your whole identity but we're not we're like normal people that are layered and complex and have interests and passions and like it's important that we're allowed to show that we yeah. are not one dimensional. Yeah, no, I mean, like, we've got many different parts of who we are, like everyone else. I, like, only the condition for yourself creating this content. So, for anyone who isn't aware, could you, like, give a bit of an explanation of what it is and maybe, like, any signs and symptoms and when to know when to, like, get seen about it? So, for me, I needed to go to the toilet a lot. I was always needing to wee. I think I was going like a minimum of 10 times a day. I was up throughout the night three, four times. So I wasn't sleeping. Obviously, it's difficult to travel. You do often have accidents, which as an adult isn't like the norm. Lots of leakage, 
but huge amounts of pain like to the point I'd be lying on the floor like in agony like I couldn't move bloating to the point where I looked like I was pregnant and it would just come on like so suddenly I would go to the doctors and they would like do tests for like urine bladder infections like UTIs kidney infections and they would come back as like negative and I'd be like well you can clearly see that something's wrong but because it was all coming back as negative they didn't know what was going on so eventually my oh so I was in A&E like on a weekly basis because it was so bad and eventually my doctor agreed to send me to get um, like a referral so I did like a few tests and initially they couldn't find what was wrong and they sent me to to a physio and when I went to see the physio um, it was actually her that said oh I think it could be this at the same time I was being tested for MS because they thought it was maybe MS so she was like we'll wait for your MRI so she was like we'll wait for your MRI results to come back and if it comes back negative I'll speak to the specialist here and that's what they did and then I had a cystoscopy I can never say it basically when they put you to sleep and put a camera in you I remember like waking up from the operation and my doctor came over and she was like yes it's confirmed you've got a really unhealthy bladder and I said really poorly bladder and I remember like at the time being so happy that I finally like had that diagnosis because I felt like nobody believed me um so yeah even though like it was obviously not good to know that you know to hear like oh there isn't a cure and you're gonna have this the rest of your life and you're gonna always have to like have operations and whatnot it was also just a relief to know and I remember when they said to me they thought it was MS like I was devastated like thinking you know, my life could be cut short and I might like lose mobility in my body and all of those things and thinking about like losing my independence. I was devastated. So it kind of then put things in perspective to me because I thought, well, do you know what? Like things might be more difficult, but I can still do things. And I want to like make the most of my life because like when I thought it was MS and I was thinking, oh, it's going to be over. It really does like make you think about actually how much you do want to be yeah, there. And like, well, I think sometimes with MS, I think it might not always, and not 100% so bad. It's like when I was conditions, it wouldn't be too, too heavy, it would affect your like lifespan. I said, won't come down it. But like, as I say, they like you probably about the time when you were getting like there's so much like you were uncertain of and wasn't too off. And I said when you like I guess when you had the diagnosis of uh insistential status, we say it anyway. And you said and I think you probably found found yourself being a bit relieved. As I said, even though it's as I said it's incurable now, then you know, you least your father and you could have like some sort of treatment and like something way off like no end up in and have in going to any every mm-hmm. week and so I think probably that was the most probably frustrating thing is like being A and A in this constant you know, like ourselves off, but we felt like having like a serious health thing mm-hmm. and then not having the answer ready for you. Yeah, it was. And like being able to kind of take control of my life again because so many of my weekends were gone because I was spent there yeah. or evenings and it was just that like that bit of hope like I can start to get things like my life back a little bit probably you found like since you started speaking about this on TikTok and social media because let's uh, help us you that as I said I wasn't aware of many people weren't aware of that had quite a you know positive impact 
just by talking about it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like I'd never heard of it before. And even still, yeah. so many doctors, like if I have to go into the doctors for something else and they say, have you got any other conditions? And whenever I say that, they're like, what's that? And I remember after um, one of my, um, so one of the treatments I have is Botox for it. And I'd had the Botox and I had to go back into hospital and they said, oh, have you had an anaesthetic recently? And I said, yeah, I have because I had my Botox my bladder and they're like for what botox on your bladder what that's a weird cosmetic treatment yeah. it's not cosmetic i've got interstitial cystitis they were like what's that and i'm thinking this is a doctor that's like 50 60 years old and has no idea so even within like the healthcare profession there's still such a lack of education so it's it's still relatively new or in its infancy yeah. in terms of education um and it's only through talking about it and it is one of those conditions that you know primarily affects women and unfortunately yeah. healthcare is very under researched and underfunded so it is down to those of us in that yeah. community to talk about it you know like doctors and uh, thing is also saying that is they have not been able to get like a quick referral because as i said then if you like all like slow referrals then like as you said like a general practice and a and being able to like have the understanding of every condition so as you say that lack of funding and understanding and awareness is mm-hmm. a big issue as you say that even like an endometrial system condition you said you have it's mm-hmm. like getting a bit talked about a bit, bit more now but as you like it's still said about still like an endurance for it and as you would probably found out of yourself there's a lot that uh, GPs and other medical professionals don't understand about it yeah oh absolutely I mean with endometriosis I was so lucky because I went in um, at 18 the first person I saw turned out to be like one of the leading specialists in the UK so in that instance I was like incredibly and that wasn't intentional it just happened to be who was there at the time so yeah like in that in that regard I've been very lucky but then in like the other regard you know that whole process of waiting and not knowing and you know the gaslighting that you go through people saying you're too young there's no way and I'm like I'm not making it up like this I'm not yeah. lying. I see. It's like that idea of like a young person's mental uh, physical health. And as you were saying, like like uh, health conditions that, you know, like typically affect women more. So with that, that as you said, that's misunderstood. And then, as you said, you got gaslighted then, and that's something that does need to be changed. And as you said then, it's about being able to, like, get more talked about a bit more, so there's a bit more understanding. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. That's why that's... And it's not comfortable to talk about, and you do often yeah. feel, like, a level of shame, especially with things that are, like, more intimate. Um, You know, it's like even though we're all grown-ups, it's still not, like, yeah. most people don't like talking about things like their bladder or their bowels. Like, it's just yeah. not socially acceptable for whatever reason. But we do need to talk about these things. We do need to have these conversations because there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's not, you know, we shouldn't be holding this shame. And the longer that we that we attach shame to it, the more likely it is that people are going to suffer in silence. Especially, and I think, like as I said, it's, like, important to have, like, these conversations because, like, open by doing this, you know, like, can start to raise education because, like, one thing, like, like I found from this podcast, it's been good to, like, learn from other people, you know, about the areas of knowledge and your life experience. And, like, as I said, this is a taboo subject, but as I say, it's something that, I found it affects for a lot of, uh, you know, autistic and neurodivergent people, a lot of chronic health conditions. 
Yeah, I, I, I have a theory that it's like the stress of masking um, that can have that effect on the body. It's just a theory, but that's my theory. Yeah, I'd say it's, it would be interesting to know what like, the reasons behind it, because I'll say there's like so, uh, like so many different chronic health conditions, like a year of like hypermobility and understand loss linked to uh, you know, like law diagnosis with an autism. And then I'd say, you you know, it is quite curious what the reasons are and, you know, what links are. And as you say, like for you, like some of the, your physical health has been due to the stresses for stuff. And then yeah. could understand that we could be related then getting out of the period of the COVID lockdowns and the area of the pandemic. Yeah, I've looked online to see like if I can find research into it and there really isn't like anything. So I think it's definitely something that needs to be yeah. researched more. Yeah, as, like as you find is like, because like not many neurodivergent people are, have been able in the past to ask the questions. And so it's an important that they're given the chance to research and understand these things and, you know, like understand these things a lot more. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. And so what have you found, like, the impacts of, like, like you know, like, saving all, all you can like, uh, saving your life story out from TikTok? And have you found uh, people being, like, contacting you and, like, like saving out, like, much it's impacted them from this yeah it's been really like heartwarming actually and you've spent a lot of people being like thank you you've really helped me to understand myself and to remove like the shame and because of that content it's helped them to get a diagnosis or to be open with their family and it's just so like heartwarming and rewarding to have that impact and really like humbling because yeah. I don't know it just feels like a like a big like responsibility but also like such a privilege to be able to do that and to have that impact on people's lives it's it's been like really like life-changing for me as well as them and I just feel like when they say thank you to me I just think like that's a shared thank you like I'm so grateful because if they didn't watch my content and comment and say oh I relate to this or I understand this or this is my experience like I wouldn't feel as comfortable in my own skin like it's definitely a two-way thing it's not just me trying to help others like I get just as much from it I think as other people get from me yeah exactly that's what i found from like starting doing stuff, stuff like this podcast because to start to feel a bit more confident in talking about these experiences and mm-hmm. because like if you're in from other people who are like experience different things they relate to and chatting to people with like sad, sad experiences even though with everyone's experiences slightly different you feel a bit like your oh, experiences have been more normalized and i guess you feel less lonely in it oh absolutely way less lonely you feel way less like isolated and yeah you feel less like an alien and as you said like before your diagnosis and like you know contact you know like doing the social media contact content that's can you probably like previously felt like and you know that can be the thing for some people so I'm glad that you've been able to at a point that where you can start to feel things turning around and you got probably got a bit more hope for yourself yeah so much more like for the first time in my life which is just I, it sounds really like soppy or cheesy but I really do think it's changed like my life for the better and I feel yeah. like the healthiest the happiest I've ever felt and I don't think if I'd like looked back 10 years ago I would have ever thought that I would be able to feel how I do now so 
yeah I feel really grateful and like there's a part of me that feels angry and resentful but you know I didn't know earlier but also in hindsight maybe if I had I wouldn't be doing this now do you know what I mean so it's yeah. like everything does happen for a reason and yeah and and it works out in a way like I am still here and hopefully I can help other people as you say it's like when you look back on your past you know like there's all loads of mixed emotions because as I said I understand that you can feel a bit angry and resentful as you like more now than diagnosis earlier but then as I said you're grateful that you had been able to like something from your past experiences and you know managed to find a way of like from like something negative to positive and then please you've been able to do that for yourself yeah so so pleased yeah because you know like from you know what you've gone through it's like you deserve to have like a something where you can see things turning around we all do though I think it's definitely like it's not a un- mine isn't a unique experience at all and I think yeah you know we all share so many of the same experiences and it always blows my mind whenever I see something and I'm like I thought that was unique to me like how have we gone for exactly the same thing so I think that we're all like we're all deserving of it and I guess that's like what kind of does drive me is wanting other people to understand that they're deserving of it too and you know to not feel angry at themselves or ashamed or guilty or any of those like really destructive emotions or feelings so that they can be like healthier and happier yeah you're absolutely right and so what was this, like one of the one things that when people to get take away from this podcast and what of the things when that people take away from this that i don't want to be changed we don't want to be changed we just want society to change there's nothing wrong with us our brain just works differently the problem is with society and how society is structured and actually there is just as many pretty much of us as there is of them why should their brain and way of thinking be prioritized actually we all have something really unique to offer and our own like perspective that is just as valuable and that can be accommodated and we should be accommodated and I think something that like was I've really struggled with is asking for accommodations and you know being able to ask for accommodations is so important basically do it like don't feel ashamed and don't feel like you don't deserve it or have imposter syndrome because you don't have a wheelchair or a walking stick like your disability is still valid Um, and because of the fact that the, the world isn't built to accommodate us so you have to take all of those accommodations that are there because if you don't, then no one will. Yeah, as I say, it's important to find a way of finding your way of self-advocating for yourself. And they tend to like ask a general, uh, like one one point you went to, like if they they could change one thing or like improve one thing in the world for disabled or neurodivergent people, or that could be like in any way in society at any level and could be like, Anything small or whatever? Um, I think it would a lot of it would be around like the diagnostic process. I think that it should be a lot easier. I don't think that there should be wait lists. I think everybody should have access to diagnosis and as quickly as possible. I think that everybody should be tested at least twice, once at primary school and once at secondary school to ensure that nobody slips through the net. I think that once you get a diagnosis that you should have clear plans written up, that you should have like check-ins on a yearly basis to see what needs
needs to be changed and how those kind of like plans and support can fit in with your life at that point and I think that we shouldn't have to ask for accommodations at work I think that they should just be like a given like it shouldn't be like can I have permission to not sit by a printer or wear headphones it's just I think that like why should we have to ask I just think that's out like crazy and I don't think that we should have to like when we start a job that they shouldn't be able to ask you prior to starting the job if you've got any disabilities obviously it can then be held against you and weaponized and yeah. you can be discriminated against so there needs to be more like protection but more understanding and listening to the needs of what disabled neurodivergent people need in the workplace when you're like uh, in school age it's about also like making sure that you got that peer support there you know that you know like neurodivergent people able to like listen and understand other neurodivergent people are making sure that understanding is there and the support that can be offered in that and like the check-ins then answers are down really and those are good ideas is there anything else you want to say that you haven't got to say yet so I, I guess like the two things I'd say is like just for people like for me exercise has been like huge medicine like it's it really like never underestimate the benefits of it and I think because I was so shit at sport because I have no coordination and balance I really stayed away from any form of kind of exercise outside of swimming because I wasn't good at it but it's not about being good at it it doesn't matter whether you're good at it or not like the health benefits for your mind and for your dopamine production and for your sleep are huge so that's definitely something that people can do to like help themselves and to do things that you enjoy like and it's not we live in a world where people want to monetize every hobby that they have actually like do things because you like it like because it brings you joy and it gives you it gives you pleasure because like you have to create that dopamine for yourself because if you don't that's when you start chasing like unhealthy forms of dopamine and develop things like addiction and whatnot so yeah Yeah. that's like probably the two kind of pieces of like I guess advice that I would give yeah as you said a quick point as it comes to exercises probably finding like as you said even though like if you're not like great or the best of it like if you're just like starting what you're best physically capable of even like if it's starting out with like a like a sort of walk and stuff like that yeah. Like also myself, like I find, like I found that myself, like I've never been great at like sports or swimming. And one thing that I always enjoyed is like having like one of those stationary bikes. You can have like as like a gym equipment. So I just got them in the pandemic, and having that in the house is just one good thing to have. And say it, man, you can follow you on social media. Yeah, TikTok is probably where like I spend most of my time. Um, I can't even remember what it is. I think it's Jess Espinx. I think it's J E S S E S P I N X. I believe. Yeah. I never remember. I've had like different handles across all of my channels, so yeah, I always forget. Yeah, but like, thank you. I guess it's always like so. What's the word like? reassuring and brings you like a lot of peace when you talk to people that get it um, yeah, and are doing important work like in trying to raise awareness and learn and educate and like support the community and not just our community but like the neurotypical community too and yeah. them understanding about us and our needs like it's a very brave thing to do because it opens you up to criticism and trolls and all kinds of things yeah yeah as I said thanks for coming on and it's been quite great conversation and I really enjoyed this no I have too very much so
oh, thanks you very much. I'll like stop recording and end that. I said, thanks you. Oh, yeah. Thanks you for tuning in to that interview. We hope you enjoyed this interview. As I said, you can email with the email address given out earlier in the uh, interview, uh, episode, as well as uh, finding me on social media at those social media handles given out earlier in the episode where you can comment on on uh, on uh, about the podcast so like uh, promote it plug it save it subscribe and all that and you can give any like feedback on the social media and find out any future updates on further episodes and further project ideas from the new rainbow project as this is a pod podcast for the new rainbow project produced by me artistically aaron aaron williams and this is for by new cast new uh, our creator our audio so sounding tired now anyway that's not that for now and uh, as i say next episode is with tessa mcenvoy Hope you enjoyed this interview and goodbye for now.